that you grab your Bibles or whatever devices you're going to be getting into the Word of God this morning and make your way to the Gospel of Mark chapter 7 as we're going to finish out this chapter this morning beginning in verse 31 and we'll work our way through verse 37. And if you've missed the last couple weeks, uh, then you missed some pretty important teachings that Jesus has been doing throughout this whole chapter. Matter of fact, Mark chapter 7 has a constant theme that runs through it all. And that is Jesus helping people understand what is, in fact, unclean or defiled and what is, what is clean and what is holy before the Lord. It began uh, in the region of Galilee where there were some scribes and Pharisees. They come to Jesus and they question him about the tradition of the elders that dealt with the ceremonial cleansing. And they noticed that the disciples were not washing their hands before they ate. And so Mark tells us that the Jewish people held to this tradition that they would wash their hands, they would wash pots and vessels, they even wash, wash cushions that they would sit on before they eat because they had this tradition, this belief that if anything unclean went into their body, then that would make themselves unclean. And so Jesus begins teaching from that understanding that it's not what we put into our body because that goes to our stomach and eventually is digested. It's what comes out of our heart is what makes us unclean. That is, in fact, what makes us defiled, and that is what makes us do the evil acts that we do, the sinful acts that we do. It's what's stored inside. So after this teaching, Jesus takes his disciple to the region of Tyre and Sidon, which is along the Mediterranean coastline, and he went there for the, the means of getting away. He wanted to be hidden, but he couldn't be hidden for very long because a woman comes to him and begins begging him to cast out the demon that is possessing her daughter. Matthew and Mark both let us know that when Jesus was there, he stayed in a house, so there were some Jewish people in that area, but it was predominantly a Gentile area. And this woman was a Gentile Greek woman coming before Jesus, asking, begging him to act on behalf of her daughter. And so it became an object lesson is what it was. And we looked at it last week. It's in verse 24 through 30. It became an object lesson about what is clean, what is defiled, what is unclean, or what is, uh, uh, what is defiled. And so he's, he's revealing to his disciples and reveals to us that this tradition that the elders had concerning washing things was complete nonsense. Because they believed that if they went to the marketplace, before they would go into their house to eat, they would completely bathe themselves. Uh, they would pretty much take a bath. The word is baptize themselves just in case they came across someone who was not a Jew. Because the Jewish people believed that if you were not a part of God's covenantal family, then you were unclean. You were a sinner. You were a Gentile. And therefore, you could impact you that their uncleanliness would transfer over to me. And, and, and so they take that from the Old Testament where God told them not to touch anything that was dead because that would make them dirty, not to, uh, not to have anybody who had a skin disease or what we know as leprosy to remain in the camp, that they were to leave the camp. Otherwise, it might defile the whole camp. And so this is where the Jewish people are coming from with this tradition of the elders. Well, this woman Jesus interacts with, which is a big no-no within the Jewish society. It was, a, it was a cultural taboo. You do not interact with people who are not Jewish people. But he interacts with her. He eventually casts out the demon, even though the disciples, you can read in Matthew, were begging Jesus just to send her away. Because they're in this place. We don't want to be around these type of people. Well, it brings us to our passage this morning where Jesus is once again going to counter this tradition of the elders as he moves to another region that is predominantly Gentile in nature, and he's going to do yet another healing. 
title for this morning's sermon is, He Does All Things Well, because that is what the crowds came to understand about Jesus, and it's a lesson for us that we too are to do all things well. So we're going to learn more about Jesus, we're going to learn more about God's love and his mercy, we're also going to learn our role in these things so we in fact can do all things well. So let's begin in verse 31, again we're in the Gospel of Mark. And the word of the Lord says, Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, I've been trying that all week, man. Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Now, the traveling arrangements of Jesus here in Mark is rather odd, as the region of Tyre and Sidon was on the northwest region of Galilee. It was actually outside the region of Galilee, like I said, on the Mediterranean coastline. And Mark explains what Jesus does. He, he goes north first, and then he kind of does this horseshoe and he starts heading south, almost to evade the region of Galilee at this point in time in his ministry, just for a period of time. The implication is that there's been a lot of hostility there from the Jewish people. And Jesus is wanting to train and teach his disciples because his time on earth is coming to an end. His ministry is going to soon end. He's going to end it on the cross. And so he's most likely taking this route, which was a long way around, so he can actually have that private time, that hidden time with disciples, in order to teach them about what, in fact, makes a person clean or unclean. It's most likely they boarded in Bethsaida, which is on the north side of the Sea of Galilee, and they sailed south into the region of Decapolis. Again, Jesus probably wanting to prolong his time away from the hostility he was facing, give his disciples and himself some rest, and have a private time with them. We don't know what actually happened in their travels. Mark doesn't tell us. None of the other gospels do either. Now, the title Decapolis there in verse 31 means ten cities. And sometimes it's translated as ten Hellenistic cities. And they're most likely Jews that lived in this area. But the point being is that this was a heavy Gentile-populated area. Hellenism was the worship of Greek culture. So this would be a place where there would be lots of idolatry going on and people worshiping the Greek gods. And before we focus on the healing that Jesus does in this area, I want us to focus on four things that deal with the crowds. We don't know what type of people they were. We don't know where they came from. We don't know what city they lived in or what uh, beliefs they had. But they have four actions. The first one you see in verse 32, they brought. Here's a crowd who brought a man to Jesus, who it seems has been deaf his entire life. And because of his deafness, is probably the reason he also has a speech impediment. That word speech impediment implies that this man could hardly talk. He had difficulty speaking. And I imagine it was a confusing time for this man, not trying to be rude, but he had never heard of Jesus, right? He was deaf. 
He probably had never seen Jesus. And now there's this crowd, hopefully some are his friends, are bringing him to a man that he had never seen, never heard, and he probably had no idea what was going on. This was a man that was in desperate need. Because of his condition, he couldn't have a job. He wouldn't be someone a woman would desire to marry and have children with because there would be a fear. What if our kids are deaf? What if our kids have to live the life that he is living? And I know in our culture it seems harsh, but this was a different culture. Most individuals with handicaps in Jesus' day were cast aside. They were led to live a life of begging. The Jews actually believed that handicaps were caused because of either the individual's sins or the parents' sins, and we'll get into that in a moment. The point I want to make is this no-named crowd brought a man in need to meet Jesus. This crowd acted on behalf of another. They showed compassion. And this is what we're called to do as God's people. We act on behalf of another. And we show compassion. We're to look out into the world and see that the world is in need just like this man. They may not be handicapped physically, but they are handicapped in sin. And it is our duty, it is our job to bring them to Jesus. That's why God, one of the reasons God has given us is his Holy Spirit, to empower us to bring people to Jesus. Secondly, notice what they did. The end of verse 32, they begged. This deaf and mute man, he could communicate in his own way, but this crowd didn't allow him to do it. Instead, they spoke on his behalf to Jesus. They told Jesus why they brought him and what they were hoping Jesus could do for him. The word begged meant that they were pleading. They were appealing to Jesus on behalf of this man. This wasn't like an insincere please. This is like a kid in the toil aisle pleading for his parents to buy the toy. They were begging Jesus. And so it brings us a question that we have to answer. Are we begging God on behalf of the lost people that are in our life? Are we begging God to heal their spiritual state and to give them a new heart? Are we moved to a place of compassion and pleading to God to do what only God can do in their life? As God's people, we need to be on our knees for those who are lost. We need to be pleading for God to heal their soul. The third thing they did, they proclaimed. That's in verse 36. Now, obviously, this was something Jesus didn't want him to do. We've talked about it before. It's called the Messianic Secret. Jesus uh, typically did this after healings and miracles because when individuals began proclaiming about what he did, more crowds began to gather and it hindered his ministry to do in that region. And so he would tell people, don't share anyone. Keep this to yourself or go see the priest so that he could continue to minister. But when the crowds began to grow, sometimes hostility began to come, and he would have to move on and do ministry in another area. But now that we've come to know Jesus as our Lord and Savior, and he has empowered us, he has commanded us, and he has commissioned us to be proclaimers of his That word proclaim means that they talked about what they experienced and saw. That's what we're called to do. We are called to proclaim what we have experienced with Jesus Christ, what we have seen God do in our lives, in the lives of others, and in the lives of the church. We proclaim it. Finally, it says, verse 37, 
they were astonished. They were overwhelmed. They were amazed. I don't know if they still use this phrase today, but their minds were blown by what they saw. I want to first deal with the negative aspect of this. So someone, or a group of someones, a group of people within this crowd, caught the news that there was a Jewish healer that had arrived in the area. Remember, they don't send text messages, so it was word of mouth. And we know news has begun to spread in all the regions. The Gospels tell us that about Jesus and what he'd been doing and what he'd been teaching. But someone came up with this idea, went to go find some of his friends, and began to form this crowd. And Pi said something along the lines, hey, here there's this guy, his name is Jesus, and he's arrived in the region. The word on the street has been known to do miraculous things, and people are getting healed. So maybe we should take Bob, because I think Bob is probably a common name in Decapolis in that time. So let's take Bob to go meet this Jesus guy and to see if he can heal him. I mean, really, what does Bob have to lose? If it doesn't work, he's still in the same condition he's in, but I kind of want to go and see what this guy's all about myself. And so this, these crowds, his friends... They grab Bob and they take him to Jesus. And then Jesus does what they hoped Jesus would do in healing their friend, and they're amazed. And what that means is after the healing, they're like, that really works. <laughs> they couldn't believe it, that it actually happened. And here's the point. The, the crowds understood Jesus. They had an understanding of Jesus. They had heard about Jesus. They had an understanding, but here's the thing. They did not have a faith in Jesus. The way we can know that is because faith is trust. And trust leads to obedience because we have a faith and a trust that God loves us. And what God tells us to do or not do is for our good. And the Bible tells us that we reveal our faith in God and our love for God if we are obedient to his commands and what he tells us to do or what he tells us not to do. See, there's a difference between having faith in God and having an understanding about God. Jesus, the Holy Spirit, the Bible, the spiritual things that God teaches us, we're out of faith in that. Not just a more knowledge about it, but to trust it. And so we can know a bunch of stuff, but if we don't have faith, then it won't produce obedience. And we're going to be just like this crowd who were amazed that the idea of bringing their friend to Jesus actually worked. The second aspect of this is, when was the last time we were amazed about Jesus? Man, his spirit is in this place. You could feel it during the worship. When was the last time we were in awe about what God has done for us? When was the last time we were astonished about the things of God. For the past couple of weeks, people have been watching college basketball. I guess that's going on. And a lot of people have become astonished when an inferior team beats a superior team. And it blasts all over Facebook. People talk about it at work. You can't walk through the grocery store without people saying, Did you see that game? Are we going to be astonished? About God like that? 
in awe about God that we just can't shut up about him? And be even more amazed about who he is compared to some 19 or 20-year-old basketball player. God sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to live a life we couldn't, die a death we deserved, grant us forgiveness that we didn't deserve, and then promise us eternal life, which at one point in time all of us didn't even know we needed. Be astonished by what a great and mighty God we serve and are loved by. Now let's look at the healing because it's kind of weird. (laughs) All right. Mark only takes a couple verses to deal with this, and it starts in verse 33. And taking him aside, Jesus taking the deaf and speech impediment man aside, from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he said, he sighed, and said to him, Ephphathah, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. I was joking with Richard Campbell on Wednesday. We drive the van to pick up kids and drop them off. That I was tempted to call this sermon the Lord's Loogie um, or the Savior's Spit. <laughs> but I didn't think it was too appropriate. But what is, what is Jesus doing here? What in the world is going on? So let's keep in mind the theme of Mark 7. The theme of Mark 7 is dealing with what is clean and what is unclean, what is holy and what is defiled. Okay? So here's this deaf man who has this speech impediment. And according to Jewish traditions and some Jewish beliefs, the understanding was that this man was the way he was for one or two reasons. The first, either his parents sinned. And so now he is living under the curse of his parents' sin. The second is that this man sinned, and so he is living in the curse of his own sin. It was a belief that God was a God of punishment, that he was bringing punishment upon either the parents or the individual. And Jesus is going to take this false teaching, this false tradition, and he's going to blow it apart later in his ministry. But because that was a belief widely held, then this man would have been deemed unclean, defiled. He would have been a beggar for all of his life, hoping for people's mercy so he could survive. And so as the disciples, and there may have been other Jews in this crowd as well, but the disciples were definitely Jews. They're standing there watching this unfold, trying to get this understanding of this situation. What in the world is Jesus going to do about this? Now, the second issue, which we already encountered in this chapter with a Gentile Greek woman, is that this man most likely was not a Jew. I mean, it's possible, but Mark never points out that he is one. And because he lived in a region that was heavy in idolatry, he was no doubt impacted by the culture around him. The most probable explanation is that he was not a Jew. And therefore, for a Jew to associate with a non-Jew would cause for the ritual cleansing of the tradition of the elders because it'd make you unclean. So according to Jewish traditions, which is where Jesus and disciples are living in this moment, this guy has two strikes against him. He is doubly unclean. And as disciples beg Jesus to send that Syrophoenician woman away in the Gospel of Matthew, I imagine they're standing at a distance, wanting to know what is Jesus going to do in this situation And so what Jesus does and what he does for us is he gives them another object lesson about what is, in fact, clean and what is, in fact, unclean. And so Jesus takes the man aside, so they went aside privately. Now, scriptures don't say at that moment in time that Jesus touched him, but he might have. 
He probably smiled and waved him over. And then they walked a little way from the crowds to just be by themselves. Jesus hasn't said anything at this point. And the only thing that he says during this whole encounter isn't, isn't even directed toward this man. And this is the beauty of Jesus' actions that we overlook. Jesus speaks the man's language. He uses Savior sign language, you could say. We have to keep in mind the man cannot hear. And so to speak to him would almost be mocking his handicap. So Jesus speaks in a language which this man can understand. Can't imagine the disciples' faces, they're standing there watching what Jesus eventually does with this man. He says he put his fingers into his ears. It literally means jabbed him into this deaf man's ears. Now, I don't recommend going around and putting your fingers in people's ears. I mean, I used to do it as a teenager when you give them like a wet willy. But he jams them into his ears, probably looking him in the face. But I can't imagine the man's ears were clean. Q-tips weren't invented yet, right? But it's at this moment that we can overlook it so easy. Jesus touched this man who would have been deemed unclean in his society. And it may not seem like much to us, but this act, according to the Jewish society, would have deemed Jesus unclean. Because the Jews believed that, again, uncleanliness could transfer from one thing to another. And here's the the, the thing. Jesus could have said the words. The man did not have to hear Jesus speak in order to be healed. But Jesus is revealing to this man in a way that he can understand what is about to take place. We see that in Scripture that Jesus is never bashful in showing love and compassion to hurting people. As God's people, we, we can't be either. Then after Jesus has his fingers jammed in this man's ears, probably looking in, in the eye. He takes them out and he spits. And, and we can overlook that. The Greek implies that Jesus spits on the fingers that were just in this man's ear. And then he puts this spittle onto the man's tongues. Tongue. He didn't have tongues. Tongue. And just put yourself in this situation knowing the context. As the disciples are watching this, I imagine most of them are like, you know, I mean, this is beyond where you should go. This is crossing the line of everything we've been taught. I mean, this is not a miracle for the weak stomach to be in, in there in person. But Jesus now, he has touched two things on this man's body, which the Jewish world has deemed unclean and defiled. His ears and his tongue. I'm sure Jesus had the man's attention by now. And Mark tells us, he lifts up an Aramaic word. That's what that is there, that ephathah. <laughs> and says, be open. But again, Jesus is speaking the man's language. Because he let a deep sigh and he looked to the heavens and said it. And so at this point in time, the man can't hear Jesus' words, but after Jesus says the words, his ears are open and his tongue is released. And that word released means like being set free from a prison. And the point of the deep sigh and looking up to heaven is so this deaf man can understand that the healing comes from God above. 
and everything was released. And so there's two things that we have to take from this encounter that Jesus has with this man. The first thing is we have to speak the language of the people. Not saying we have to use the words they use. Definitely not saying we should use some of the jokes they use. But we have to speak a word to the people in a way that they can understand God loves them. We have to do it in such a way they can understand it, they have the opportunity to accept it, and the opportunity to put their faith in it. This man couldn't hear, so Jesus spoke his language without saying a word. People who have little to no background in Christianity aren't familiar with some of the words we use in the church. I mean, think of some of the words you, if you read through any of Paul's letters, words like justification, sanctification, propitiation, sin, forgiveness. Or when we talk about the second coming of Christ to the world, these words are like Christianese. They're a foreign language. And some people here today may be like, well, I don't even know what some of those words mean. But here's the thing, as God's people, we need to understand them. Because when we understand those words, those theological words, we understand the beauty of our salvation and the love that God truly had for us. And so as God's people, we have to be able to understand those words so we can present the gospel to people who can't comprehend those words. We have to speak in their language, in words that they can understand. We have to present the gospel to people where they are, not where we want them to be. This was Paul's theology of ministry in 1 Corinthians. He says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside of the law, not being outside of the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside of the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. Hear this. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. And I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessing. See, Paul understood you got to meet people who are still living in this world where they are. And then he introduced them to Jesus, and you let Jesus get them to where they need to be. Because that's what Jesus' ministry modeled. Share the gospel to proclaim it in ways that people who may not have any familiarity with it, that they can understand it. And then the Holy Spirit takes part and takes over. The second takeaway is this. The love of God requires a personal touch. This is what Jesus was doing for this man. He wasn't looking down on him because he had handicaps. But he took him aside. He showed him that he loved him. He was seen. And he was important. And then he set him free. And here at Harvest Hill, we support a lot of ministries financially. I mean, currently we're doing an a Annie Armstrong Easter offering thing, and it goes to support missionaries. And that's great. Those things are awesome. I'm glad we can support ministries and missionaries and things like that. But sometimes we got to get our hands dirty. Jesus literally got his hands dirty. He stuck them in a guy's ear. <laughs> and sometimes we have to get our hands dirty 
so we can make a personal touch with an individual so they can come to understand the love of God. And I understand that we can share uh, scripture on social media. We can share Christian songs on social media. We can send it through emails or text. But it's through letting other people know that we personally care about them that matters. That they're not just another individual. Dr. R. Kent Hughes writes, God's word is enough. It can do it alone. But he has chosen to minister through people who pray, who are compassionate, and who are willing to get their hands dirty. Jesus, in profound communion with God, he exhaled a sigh of deep compassion over the man. His hands, his very saliva, had anointed him. The point is not to start spitting on people. <laughs> you know, we don't sing songs, Hockaloogie for the Lord, Hockaloogie. We don't sing those songs. Could be a good t shirt. I mean, Disciple Now theme or something. The point is, is to see people in their desperate state of need. The people in this world are handicapped in sin if they don't have Jesus. And they need us, Christ's ambassadors, to meet them where they are and speak in a way that they can understand. I want to return to one more aspect of this healing. That's in verse 35. And his ears were open, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. The man was fully healed. It began in his ears, it moved to his tongue, and he was completely changed. And that word release, again, carries the meaning of being set free from prison. There may be some here today who are in a place of despair, of worry, anxiety, pain. And you need to be set free, released, and only Jesus can do that for you. There are maybe some here who are still living in sin, and they need to be set free from that prison. And this is why we proclaim the gospel. God created you for a relationship with him. He desires to be in relationship with you. But it is your sin that is keeping you from that relationship. Now, the word sin, since we're in basketball season, is basically an air ball. We completely miss the mark. And because we have sin in our life, it separates us from a holy God. And sometimes we think, well, if I'll just work a little harder, I'll do a little bit better, I'll read the Bible more, but that won't fix it. See, we can't do anything to have our sin forgiven on our behalf. It is only through Jesus Christ, which is why he came. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross to take the cost and wages of our sin, and then he rose again to show that he can forgive us and give us eternal life. And the Bible says when we believe in our heart that to be true, and we confess Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we will be saved, which means we will be given eternal life, which means we will go to heaven. And Christopher started us out this morning with his testimony of following Jesus Christ, and that may be what you need to do here today. We're going to come this time of invitation. I'm going to ask Nick and Bridget to come up and lead us in a song. And if you need to come down and accept Christ, I'm just going to ask you to come down the aisle and find a seat in this front row here. I'll come and sit by you and pray with you. We'll celebrate because the Bible says when one person comes to Christ, the heavens erupt. So if you need to come down, I'm going to invite you to come. Or maybe you've got something going on in your life. You just need to come and kneel before the Father and release it. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this day.
Thank you for loving us. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for your mercy and your grace, your compassion. And Lord, you know every heart and every soul in this place and who belongs to you and who doesn't. And so, Father, I pray that your spirit would come upon them, that we have a full understanding, and that they would step out in faith. And today would be their day of salvation. Lord, I know we have people within our church family who are going through difficult times and struggling. But even in the midst of the struggle, you're still God. And so, Father, we want to release those to you, those worries to you, to seek first your righteousness and your kingdom. I pray in this time of invitation that you continue to be glorified and praise all in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.